Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 33. And we're going to be looking at verse 5 and 6 this morning. And um, I hope you brought a pen and a pencil because the message that God put on my heart, there's a lot of scripture to it. And uh, I don't think I can go through every single Portion. I'll probably be referencing a lot of them and quoting them, but I encourage you to write and take notes um, because I believe this is a very important thought um, for this morning. Isaiah chapter 33, verses 5 and 6 says this It says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness and wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. And um, this morning, I want to speak a topic, a subject about unlocking the treasures of God. Unlocking the treasures of God. I know it's kind of an unusual thoughts, an unusual topic, but as we see here and as we go through this morning, I have to lay down a lot of groundwork to build upon, and that's why I say it's going to be, normally I could probably put it into two two weeks to really give a full, the full picture, um, but this, this morning I'm going to try and do my best to kind of wrap it up into one single package. Um, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive right in this morning. Father, we thank you, God, for your love. We thank you for your word. Lord, you are exalted. You deserve all praise, Lord. God, you are on high. Father, we just ask that you would meet with us this morning, that you would speak to our hearts. God, we, we need to hear from you, not what I say, not what my thoughts could be, but God, what your word says. And that's why I've included so much scripture this morning, because I want to hear from you because you're the one who knows the best. And God, I ask this morning that you would meet the needs of those in this, this building. God, that you would speak to hearts and that you would use this message to be a help to those who listen. And Lord, we give you all the honor and grace and, and, and um, praise this morning. Lord, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as I mentioned before, as I was going through my devotions, these verses just jumped out at me. And, um, and I began to, to meditate and just think about them and just kind of mull on them, you know, as, as just kind of wondering, okay, what, what, is, what is God trying to tell me here? What is God trying to, to show me in his word? And, and uh, when, when, sometimes when verses jump out like that, um, I like to, to just kind of think about them, to look at them. Say, okay, God, what, what is it that you're trying to show me? And um, in verse number six, it says here, it says, And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and strength of salvation. But it was that last part that really just kind of jumped out to me. It says, The fear of the Lord is his treasure. When I came to that, the his part, who is he talking about here? Whose treasure is the fear of the Lord? And I realized, and I came to him, and I said, you know what? That person is me. That person's you. And I began to, to think about, God has some treasures for us. When we come to the place in our life where we have the proper View, I guess you could say, of God. And that's where this developed from. And so by way of introduction, several times this last month, we, I did teach and spoke about fear. Because all around us in October, it is a dark time. There's a lot of emphasis on the worldly fear of frightening things, spooky things, dark things. 
And I've, I've focused on that aspect of fear and how a Christian should not be afraid of the things of this world. God doesn't want us to be afraid of those things. And we, we focused on several applications upon one aspect of the word fear. But there is so much more to this one little word. It's only a four-letter word. But there is so many things attached to this word that as you start to study it, as you start to look at it, it just opens up a huge box. The word fear and its concept and different forms, fear, feared, fearing, terror, things of that nature, There's over 500 verses that deal with fear of some sort. 500 verses. And so I would kind of think, well, if God thinks it's that important for us to understand this word fear, it's well to to study and to actually look and to learn more about this as we can. Honestly, a proper in-depth study of the word fear I would say it would probably take several weeks to months of messages to really fully understand the entire concepts of this word. In scripture, the word fear, uh, most of the expressions that, that it has is two different types of emotion. The first one is a filial or filial. I'm not sure exactly how it's pronounced. Um, but this fear is the fear of God is a holy awe or a reverence of God and his laws. It springs from a just view and a real love of the divine character. It leads to a hatred and shunning of everything that could offend such a holy being. And it helps those who fear, have this fear, to aim at perfect obedience. So that's one expression that's most common. The other one is a slavish fear. This is the effect or consequence of guilt. It is the painful apprehension of merited punishment. When we do wrong, it is natural for us to fear the consequences, right? That's that kind of fear. That's what slavish fear is about. Um, and so that's, that's the two main uh, types of fears, I guess you could say, that uh, the most common expressions of it. But both of these are needed in the Christian life. And these types of fears, what we're going to be looking at this morning, because when we have the appropriate view and the appropriate fear and understanding it, there are treasures that they unlock in our lives that God offers to us and wants us to use. And so as we dive in this morning, we're going we're gonna to be building a foundation before we can look at some of these treasures. The first thing is, is that slavish fear brings about filial fear. In Jude chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, it says, And of some have compassion, making a difference. That's my life verse. But verse 23 also goes along with it. It's not just compassion. But verse 23 says, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. I believe God shows us in these two verses the entire spectrum of what brings people to salvation. There are some that the goodness of God brings them to repentance. They see the, when God does, does things for them, they see it, and that's what works on their heart. But with others, it is showing them their current standing before God and their future punishment for their sin. That there is a punishment. That there is a place called hell. That there is a lake of fire that if their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, that is where their eternity will be. That's, that's, there's a fear there. We need to have that fear. See, when I became a born-again Christian, what broke my heart 
what broke the pride, I should say, over my heart was a realization that if I did not repent of my sin and become born again, I knew that I would never see my younger sister again. I knew that she had trusted Christ as her Savior. I knew that she was a born again believer. But with me, I realized that I came to that point that I knew that I deserved hell because of my sin. Even though I was a very self-righteous person, I was a very good person in the world's eyes. And I was hanging upon that merit for being able to get into heaven. But it wasn't until I came to that point where God spoke to my heart and said, look, if you don't trust Christ as your Savior, you're never going to see her again. That is what broke my heart. That is what, that's what humbled me to the point where I knew that if I did not turn away from my sin and turn towards Christ in repentance, my destination was hell. And as I grew in my relationship with God, the filial fear grew stronger and stronger, especially as I began to learn God's word and understand his heart regarding the world around me and the wickedness of my own sin and rebellion. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of God. As we learn and as we grow and as we learn God's word, we understand the things that he hates, the things that uh, abhor him, the things that, that make him sick, the Bible says. Man, as I began to read those, and I, and I realized oh, I was doing some of those things. And I didn't want to do that. And so that was me growing in that filial fear, saying, God, I don't want to do that to you. I don't want that to get in our, into the, the way of our relationship. And so that as I understood the consequences, understood those things that helped my my fear, the proper fear of, of, of the Lord grow and my love for him deepen. You see, before salvation, people need to be shown the slavish fear from Scripture. They need to know what awaits them if they do not repent. They need to know. They need to know that there are consequences for their sin. We can't just do what all we want, whatever we want to please in this life. Some things are going to come back and bite us. I don't know everyone's past in here, but you probably could say, Amen, I made some mistakes in my life. People need to show that if they do not trust Christ as their Savior, there is an eternity in a lake of fire that awaits them, and they have to turn. They have to repent. That's why we need to be out on the streets. That's why we need to hand out leaflets that have the gospel in them. That's why we need to tell those that we love, those that we're around, look, there's a place that I don't want you to go to. But if you do not turn, this, this is what's going to happen. That's, that's the slavish fear. But as Ephesians 4.15 says, we're supposed to do it with love. Not with anger or hatred towards someone. We're supposed to do it in the proper manner. I know a lot of people who try to bash people's heads over the, with the gospel. Can I tell you that will never work? Might, maybe there might be some rare cases that it might work. But for the most part, you can't browbeat someone into salvation. You have to show them and they have to realize their own need. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. He's already been working. We're supposed to just keep on telling them and showing them and giving them opportunities to trust Christ. And after salvation, God removes 
the condemnation of the internal punishment of our sin forever from us. We no longer have to worry about an eternity in the lake of fire. We no longer have to worry about that condemnation. He removes that completely from us forever. See, Romans 8.15 says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But, there's a condition here in that verse. Yes, there's no condemnation for my sin for all of eternity. But if I choose to walk after the world, there will be condemnation. There will be consequences. See, when we decide to walk after the world, there will be consequences for doing so. And it is the slavish fear of those consequences that ought to keep us from walking after the flesh. For example, I drink as much alcohol as I want to. What? (laughs) That's the Christian liberty. I make that decision. But the reason why I do not drink is because I have seen the danger and the destruction that alcohol brings to a person and to their world. I believe alcohol is the greatest dissolver in the world. It dissolves health. It dissolves relationships. It dissolves hope. It dissolves families, marriages, friendships, jobs, bank accounts, your own brain. It dissolves things. That's the consequences. That's the condemnation that partaking in that stuff brings. When you walk after the flesh. You see, I have no desire to put myself under the influence of anything that would cloud my mind in any way. Because I am afraid of what I could say or do. Because the depths of the human heart there is so vile and so deceitful that if you take away the restraint of your consciousness, you don't know what you could possibly do. That's why alcohol is so dangerous. And people end up doing some things that they regret for the rest of their life. That's a consequence. That's a condemnation for walking after the flesh. I've heard the argument, well, we, we could just do it in moderation. I've heard that argument. Where's the limit? Because your flesh is never satisfied with moderation. It is never satisfied with moderation. It loves excess and will always keep pushing and pushing and pushing against the boundaries that you may have set up in your life. You say, oh, I'm only going to have one drink. Well, while you're there for a while, you know, you're around your buddies, around your, the girlfriend or whatever, and it's very easy to, to kind of get on, well, okay, I'll have another one. And it's a very dangerous path and slope that you get put on. And pretty soon you don't realize just how far gone you've gone down the slope. That's why it's best not even to make that first step. That's why I don't drink. Because I've seen it destroy too many people. And I'm afraid because my dad is, was an alcoholic. I could be very easy the same way. And I'm thankful God saved me from that possibility. Doesn't mean I can't still go that way if I ever decide to drink. But at least I'm thankful that he kept me from it. That's what that slavish fear brings in our daily walk. It keeps our flesh in check. 
Again, Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You know, notice that there's no slavish fear when you do the right things and you walk in the Spirit. I don't have any fears or guilt when I'm reading my Bible, when I'm handing out tracts or going to church or serving the Lord. I don't feel guilt about doing these things because I know they're the right things to do. Right? That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And when we do the things that we know we're supposed to do, there's no guilt there, is there? It's when we do the things that we know we shouldn't be there. We know we should be in our place. We know we should be doing what God wants us to be. And, and when we start feeling that guilt, that's the slavish fear. God uses that in saying, hey, come on. Come back. Come back. Because God does say in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And as we follow, as we go draw closer to the Lord, as we do His will, those are the things that we can live in. We don't have to worry about that slavish fear. But it's when I don't do the right thing that I began to feel the guilt. And guilt is a good thing. It's a good thing. Because it brings us back to the right path. That guilt brought on by slavish fear points us to the, back to a proper filial fear of God. You see, God used this several times throughout Scripture to show that there are consequences of sin and that they should be feared. Several of us probably know the, 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 uh, the story in Scripture of Ananias and Sapphira. They sold some land. They talked together and they said, well, we're only going to give them so much. We're going to hold back some. But we're going to act like we're given everything. You know, because they wanted the, the honor and the praise. They wanted the attention. And so Ananias came in and uh, gave Peter the money from the land that they said. and said, look what, look what God gave us, you know, uh, to give to you, Peter. And uh, isn't this something great that God has done? And Peter, straight away, the Holy Spirit was knew that Ananias was lying. And he asked him, Ananias, is this really the, the amount that you sold the land for? And Ananias said, yeah, of course it is. So he lied right plain, you know, point blank in Peter's face. And Peter said, basically, I'm, just, I'm trying to paraphrase for the sake of time, and Peter told him and said, because of your lie, you're going to die. And that's what happens. It says in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 5, and Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, and he gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. And verse 11, well, up to verse 11, his wife doesn't know what happened to her husband, and so she comes into the situation. And she says the exact same thing that Ananias has said. And sadly, her life was lost as well. And great fear came upon all the church in verse 11. And as many as heard these things, they realized God's serious about holiness. He's seriousness about whether or not what our motives are. What we do with our, the things that we say. Now, does he strike down everyone who lies? No, but that was a one-off situation to show us and to bring fear and let people know God's serious about this thing called holiness. He's serious about our walk with him. He's serious about us walking in the spirit instead of the flesh. He wants us to understand that just because we're forgiven, that we cannot now sin as much as we want to without any consequences. Even Paul writes in Romans 6.1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Just because you're saved and you're a born-again Christian does not mean we can do whatever we want with our life without any consequences. If anything, it should help us to walk a little bit more narrower 
in our life. So as we laid the foundation here with slavish fear bringing about filial fear, I can now kind of show some of the things, the treasures of filial fear. In Isaiah 33.5, you might still be there. I know I've quoted a lot of scripture, but in Isaiah 33.5, it says here, The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. Before we can unlock those treasures, we have to have the right key. We have to have the right key. And I think the, the key that unlocks these things is realizing who God is and who we are. You see, God deserves to be exalted. He needs to be the priority in my life. He has to be the priority over my family, over my job, and everything else in my life. He's supposed to have that eminence. You see, my wife, my sons, they are gifts from God to me. Our children, your spouse, is a gift from God to you. And so many times we take our eyes off of our Savior, off of our, our Lord and our Master, and we turn our eyes upon the gifts, and we lift up the gifts over our Savior, even though we don't intentionally do it. We don't mean to, but it's very easy to. Our job is a gift. God has blessed us immensely. But all the things that he has given to us are never supposed to become more important than the giver. As tragic as the life of Job is, it reveals that everything we have could be taken away from us in an instant. And if that happened in your life, what would you have then as the focus of your life? What would you have? See, Job focused on himself and his own righteousness instead of turning to God completely for his complete strength. I mean, what he went through would devastate anybody. And I don't beat him up for that. I can't even imagine what my response would be in the same situation. It's very easy to be a little kind of condescending to him. Joe, you should get up out of that pit. Get out, you know, just get up and get moving on with your life. Until you go in the same spot that he's at. It's where compassion, a little bit of mercy comes in. And his friends definitely did not have that. But it shows us that if, what would we have if God took away all of his gifts? What would we do? Would we exalt him or would we raise our fist at him and say, God, how dare you? We need to realize that we are but dust and clay. We are only dust and clay in God's hands. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay and thou art potter. And we all are the work of thy hand. God is the one who designed us. God is the one who created us. We are but clay in his hands. Psalm 103, 14 says, For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Job 34, 15 says, All flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again unto dust. Doesn't matter who you are in this world. You could be the richest person. You could be Elon Musk. One day he's going to die and he's going to turn to dust. He could, he's got everything in this world at his fingertips, whatever he wants. And yet one day he's going to face the exact same thing that you and I are going to face. Death. Well, hopefully 
The rapture will happen first. <laughs> we won't have to worry about that time. But in case that God delays that, one of us, we're all going to eventually return to dust. Ecclesiastes 12, 7 says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Psalm 8, 4 says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? David writes, God, I'm insignificant. Why do you even care about me? Why do you even care about what I go through? Because he loves us so much. And as we learn in Sunday school, he knows you so intimately, you, more than you can even imagine yourself. He knows what's on your heart and your mind. He knows everything about you. But why would he, why would he do that? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. But what about, what happens though to those who refuse to acknowledge and exalt God for who he is and the way he should be? What about those who hate God? Those who want nothing to do with God? Well, we know that one of the punishments is a lake of fire. But if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And verse 18. God reveals in his word when man refuses to humble himself and allows his pride to make him far more than what he truly is, just dust and clay, and desires that he's, he is far more important than God see some things about this what happens to them starting in, in verse number 18 it says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness people have the truth most know the truth or at least know of it but they refuse to acknowledge it it says because that they that sorry because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shown it unto them. God has said in His Word, you know, behold, even the even the heavens declare the righteousness of, or the glory of God. No man is without excuse. God has revealed it to them. He's shown it to them. It says for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things, Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which was against nature. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, Murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, 
not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. You see a lot of people in our world where those categories fit into. And it's all because they refuse to acknowledge and exalt God. It's a dangerous path to walk away from God. You know, the biggest obstacle to exalting God is our pride. It's our pride. It's what keeps us from worshiping him properly. Psalm 10, 4 says the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all of his thoughts. Proverbs 14, 3 says in the mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise shall preserve them. Can I ask you just, just very honestly, when was the last time that you physically knelt before your God? When was the last time you just, out of reverence and love for your Savior, just got on your knees and said, God, I love you. God, you're everything to me. I know that we can stand and we can pray in our hearts. I know that we can sit in our seat and pray in our hearts and exalt God that way. But there is just something about our physical position that just humbles us even further. A lot of times why we do not do that is because of pride. What will people think? What will people think if I get on my knees and pray? What will people think if I get on my knees or on my face and worship God? Cry out to Him and thank Him. What will people think? It's pride. It's pride. You know, in Luke twenty-two forty-one. As Jesus is in the the garden before he's going to be crucified, he leaves his his inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John. The Bible says here in Luke 22, 41, it says, "And and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and he kneeled down and he prayed. If Jesus, who is God, thought it was important enough for him to kneel Pray to his father. How come we don't? Are we better than Jesus? I'm not being facetious with that. I'm I'm being honest. Sometimes we, we let our pride get in the way of just proper worship and exalting God and saying, hear everything. Hear everything. Acts 20, 36 says, and when he had thus spoken, talking about Paul, he kneeled down and prayed with them all, talking about the elders of, of Ephesus because he knew that he was never going to see him again. He wasn't, he just didn't, the guy was not going to bring him with them anymore. He was on his way to Jerusalem and he knew that he was going to be captured there. And Acts 21.5 says, And when he had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way and they all brought us on our way. This is in Caesarea with wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and we prayed. That's what the New Testament church did. They saw that there was something about kneeling that affected their heart and removed that pride. So when they prayed, there was no pride in the way. That is the key. I think, to unlocking these treasures. So when we get that understanding of who God is, we can unlock them. Isaiah 33, 6 says, And wisdom and knowledge shall be, uh, sorry, two ahead. Uh, wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and strength of salvation. The fear of God, uh, sorry, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. So the first treasure that I believe that, that we get to unlock when we have that proper Exalting that proper fear of God is salvation. When we understand just how sinful we are and how holy God is, bring salvation. When we realize just how good God is to us, 
who of our own selves are completely undeserving of his love, his forgiveness, and his mercy, we can unlock that treasure of salvation. Think about it. Romans 5, 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we were still sinners, God loved us so much and said, Look, here is salvation if you want it. See, salvation is a treasured gift from God. It is not a reward that we can earn of our own works. It is a gift. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Ephesians 2.8, we probably memorize this one. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. 2 Corinthians 9.15, Paul writes his thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. The greatest treasure I think that God gives us right away is salvation. Romans 6.23 says, For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.18 says, Wherefore, as the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Can I ask you this morning, when was the last time you sincerely thanked God for the treasure that is your salvation? Not in public, but just between you and God. You just spend time with him and say, God, thank you for my salvation. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for allowing your son to go on that cross and pay for my sin, for being crucified in my place. When was the last time you did that? The second treasure that God gives us is the Holy Spirit. And with it, the, the fruits of the Spirit. As you... And I learned to have the appropriate fear of the Lord and understand that he is everything and that he knows what is best for our life. You'll begin to trust and you'll begin to yield control of your life to him. And when we do that, the life that he gives us is far better than what we try to do on our own. So not only did God forgive you of your sins at salvation and gave you a a new home for eternity, but he also gave you a part of himself to dwell inside of you as the Holy Spirit. Acts 10.45, this is when Cornelius, the first Gentiles, he was a Roman soldier, uh, had gotten saved. He and those that were with him, they trusted Christ. It says, and they of the circumcision, the Jews, which believed were astonished. And as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Until that time, it was that people had to come and they laid their hands on them. And that's how they got the Holy Spirit. But when Cornelius got saved and his family and those that were in the room with him, the Holy Spirit came in just like at Pentecost. Came in and anointed them and the Holy Spirit dwelt in them. And that is the way he now came upon believers as soon as salvation comes. The moment that you trust Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes in and he seals himself in you so that he cannot leave until you breathe your last breath or until we're raptured. And he is now within us, inside of you to help you. He's that still, small voice. And as we yield our life and our choices to him, he enriches your life with his special treasures. And those special treasures that he brings. Now, there's, there's a lot of treasures that the Holy Spirit brings to a, a, a Christian's life. But specifically, he brings the fruit of the Spirit. So what are the fruits of the Spirit? Well, turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5, verse number 22. These are what's called the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22. I am nearly finished this morning, believe it or not. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit, not a Spirit, as you see here, 
It is a fruit of the Spirit, capital S, talking about the Holy Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And again, I could probably take a month of Sundays and go over each one of the different fruits of the Spirit. Because there's so much, even within that, I just don't have the time to be able to go over. There's so much to learn. What is this fruit called love? What is this fruit called goodness? Why is it important for us for the Holy Spirit to give me? Well, I'll just give you a very quick rundown. Quick definition about what each of these fruit bring to a Christian's life who yield themselves to God. First one's love that's mentioned. This love is not based on emotion or feeling, but a desire that seeks the highest good for others. Joy is a gladness or delight that is not based on financial success, good health, popularity, or any other outside stimulus. It is a joy that only the Holy Spirit brings that no matter the storm that you go through, you can go through it with joy. Peace. What is peace? It is a state of assurance, contentment, and a lack of fear. It brings harmony and unity to the believer. Long-suffering. What about long-suffering? What is, why is that important? Long-suffering is slowness in avenging wrongs and being able to bear trials without complaint. What about gentleness? Why would a Christian need gentleness? Gentleness is a desire to put others at ease. It is a sweet and attractive temperament that shows friendly regard. What about goodness? Goodness is a selfless desire to be open-hearted and generous to others above what they deserve. Faith. Faith is a firm devotion to God. It is loyalty to friends and dependability to carry out responsibilities. What about meekness? You know, most, most of the newer Bibles, they take out meekness and temperance and they change the definition a little bit. Meekness is a humble, non-threatening demeanor that derives from a position of strength and authority. It is useful in calming another's anger. It is not a quality that is weak and passive. It is, I've heard it said that meekness is strength under control. The Bible called Moses the meekest man on earth. He had great Authority, but he kept it under control. Temperance. Temperance is being able to control yourself and as well as restrain your emotions, your actions, and desires from the lust of the flesh. Now, these are just a quick definition of the, of the nine fruits. But there are other gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to equip you to serve God. But that's going to be, have to be a message for another time. Because we wouldn't be here until dinner time going through all those. Lastly, this morning, the last gift, last treasure that I have this morning. There's so many more. But I can only highlight on three this morning. Treasure three is wisdom. Wisdom. If you look here at the verse, the verse again uh, says this. It says, and wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. And strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Wisdom is being able to apply the knowledge that you have. And learn into various situations of your life. You see we live in a world today where there is an abundance of knowledge. There is so much knowledge out there. I mean it's at, it's at our fingertips. You want to know anything just ask Google. You know. Uh, there's so much knowledge available but there's not a lot of wisdom. And our children and our, the people that, we're growing, you know, that we live in, they live in a world of knowledge, but very little wisdom. Very little wisdom. Because wisdom is found in having the right fear of God 
and especially his word. See, Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it starts. That's where real wisdom begins, is when you have the proper fear of God. A good understanding have they have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 14 27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. It gives you wisdom. It gives you wisdom to make sure that you don't walk down the wrong path and have a premature death. Proverbs 15, 33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. See, wisdom is something that God desires you to have. And if it's something that you feel you lack in your life, ask God for it. James 1, verses 5 through 8 says, If any, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. God wants us to ask. We have to make sure that we're asking for the right reason. That we truly want to know what he wants us to do. Now there are several other treasures that await the Christian who desires to grow in the relationship with God. They are unlocked by having the proper fear of God in your life, especially as you grow in your filial fear of the Lord and understanding of just who God truly is. And the more that you grow in this fear, you'll discover how greater your love for him will also deepen. He wants us to fear him. He wants us to, to have that appropriate fear of him. Not the fact that we're, we're not the fear that we're terrified, we, we're huddering, we're shuddering in a closet, afraid to come out because we're going to get zapped by a lightning bolt. That's not the fear he's talking about. He's talking about when we understand who he truly is, there is a natural fear that we should have. When we stand before our creator, if you noticed, oftentimes in scripture, whenever anybody God was dealing with, they fell on their face because they realized just who they were speaking to. Even Isaiah, he wrote these verses that we looked at. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, the Bible says that when he, God gave him a vision of heaven, just a little glimpse of his majesty. And Isaiah fell on his face and it affected him the rest of his life of what he saw. He realized just how wretched he was. How sinful he was compared to a holy God. That's a good fear to have. But Ellen, would you mind coming up and just playing softly? For a moment, I would like heads bowed, eyes closed. I just want to speak to your hearts as Ellen plays. Whatever, just something softly. Just want to speak to hearts this morning. Just kind of get you to think. I like to try to to probe your heart. Allow the Holy Spirit to just give you some opportunities to talk to God without worrying about what anyone else looks around and says, but give you an opportunity just to be able to talk with God. Whatever God has dealt with, with you this morning, the altar is always open. I'm never one to, to close an altar if you ever want to come down. I know there's your seat's just fine, but... Sometimes there's just something about coming before an altar. This morning we've learned a little bit more about this word fear. 
There is so much information to unlock. There is so much about this word that we have not even barely touched. We learn about two main types of fears found in the Bible, among others. We learn about slavish and filial. Both of them are important to the believer and both are needed. We learn that slavish fear brings about a filial fear of God. I hope you understand that before salvation, people need to know. They need to be shown the slavish fear from Scripture. They need to know what awaits them if they do not repent. And they need to be shown this with and through love. You'll never browbeat someone to make them submit to become saved. They have to make that choice. And as our filial fear grows toward God and Savior, it unlocks many treasures. First treasure we looked at about salvation. It's born upon a proper understanding of who God is and who we are. We need to come to that point of humility before our Creator. Salvation is something that we cannot earn for ourselves. Otherwise, it would be a reward instead of a gift. God freely offers salvation to anyone who would receive that precious gift. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I don't know if I've ever ever trusted Christ as my Savior. I don't know if I've ever received that gift of salvation. I've never come to a point where I've repented of my sin and and chose to, to take that gift that God offers. If you need help with that, I can show you through the Word of God how you can trust Christ as your Savior this morning. Another treasure we receive is God Himself dwelling within us as the Holy Spirit. Really, to, to really fully comprehend just how special even having the Holy Spirit in our life and the things that He brings to our life would take weeks, if not months, to fully explore. And the Holy Spirit is a gift to you. When we have that proper fear of God, we yield our lives to Him, the fruits of the Holy Spirit are revealed stronger in our lives. Can I ask you this this afternoon, how is your fruit bearing coming along? Are you struggling letting some of these fruits show in your life? You know, it's not just, it's not a a chain of events. You know, it's not like a a level in a game where, you know, you attain love. And once you get love, you can now go after joy. And once you get joy, you can now start going after peace. No, all of these fruits are available all of them are. And He doesn't just give some Christians love or some Christians peace. He, as the Holy Spirit, gives them all. And He's given every single one of them to you. But like any fruit, they need to be cultivated. They need to be cultivated. They cannot grow if there is a stony heart which the seed cannot blossom from. And as you yield your life and as you draw close to Him, it's the perfect soil for these fruits to bear. I ask you this morning, how's your wisdom coming? Do you feel like things just do not seem to be clicking well or handling situations in a wise manner? God has given us nearly whole chapters in the Bible dedicated to growing in wisdom. And God wants you to have and use that treasure. He wants you to know. He wants you to have that wisdom. He wants you to be able to to know what to do in the circumstances of life. And it's unlocked in His Word. That's where you find it. Again, Isaiah 33, 5 and 6 says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. 
the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is His treasure. He wants you to have these treasures. He offers them freely. Just know God loves you. He knows whatever situation you're facing. He's there to help you. Whatever the burdens are that you may be carrying, He's there. He knows. He just wants you to come draw close to Him. 